This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura Suter. This week, we've got all the latest market updates, including the latest headlines from the energy market, where massive profits clash slightly uncomfortably with the nation's bills all getting more expensive. We'll also be looking at a very strange tie-up between Greg's and Primark. And this week, I'm joined by Danny Hewson. Hello. Also, today, we'll be talking about what that interest rate increase last week means for mortgage holders. Dan Coatsworth is chatting to Artemis Positive Future, a new fund that's been caught up in the recent market sell-off. And we'll also be talking about the big meta news. Also, after a very long hiatus, we're going to turn to my favourite topic, holidays. Mine too, yes. Which will mean nothing to listeners who've joined us during the pandemic, which has obviously been a very, very bleak time for holidays. But any long-term listeners will know my love of talking about holidays endlessly. And we're back. But first, let's talk about energy. Yeah, and of course, the headlines have been dominated by energy over the last week. We had the announcement of the new energy price cap sooner than we expected, Laura. Yeah, so they brought forward the announcement by a few days and also really nicely put it on the same day as the Bank of England's interest rate rise. So that made for a slightly crazy day. But... (laughs) um, I'm sure lots of people will have seen the headlines by now, but just in case you haven't, to recap, um, the energy price cap will be changing from April. They announce what the change will be ahead of time, so everyone can get prepared. Um, And from April, the average household energy bill will go up by around £700 a year. So that takes um, the average household who are paying by direct debit, takes their average energy bills up to about £2,000 for gas and electricity um, per year. Anyone on a prepayment meter will pay slightly more. And this is obviously a massive increase um, and at a time when we've also previously seen an increase in the price cap. So energy bills are going up. The next announcement is scheduled to come um, and the next price cap change will change in October. So ahead of um, next winter. Um, But one interesting tidbit in the small print that was released alongside the price cap is that um, rather than changing it every six months, which is what they've done since the price cap was introduced a few years ago, now the regulator Ofgem has the ability to change it in exceptional market circumstances. So we could see more frequent changes to the price cap, which means more frequent increases to our bills. I thought I would do a quick run through of the government help that was announced. So the price cap change was announced in the morning and then the government announced some help shortly afterwards for households. Um, What that looks like is, um, I guess, threefold. Firstly, there will be a £200 energy loan. So you'll get £200 off your energy bill this year, but then you will have to repay that back um, at £40 a year starting from next April. So it's a it's an interest-free loan. It's not like um, borrowing money on like a personal loan or a credit card, um, but you do have to repay it back quite 
in quite a lot of the coverage it's been talked about a kind of rebate and that makes it sound like you're just getting 200 pounds but that's not the case um that goes to every household um regardless of your kind of income levels or your energy bill levels um and it will it's linked to your electricity bill because everyone has an electricity bill not everyone is on the gas network um so you'll see that off your bill the second bit of support announced by the government is um 150 pounds towards your council tax um so all households in england in Properties that are council tax A to D will get £150 back on their bill. Um, if you pay by direct debit, that will just be automatically credited to your bank account. Um, and then if you are outside of those bands or you already don't pay council tax, which a lot of low income households don't, um, then there's a kind of discretionary fund and you can apply to the council for additional support. But that one isn't quite as smooth in that it's not an automatic rebate like the um, other one. You actually have to apply um, and I guess show why you're on a low, low income and why you need it. Um, and there's also things like the uh, warm home discount scheme, which is also being increased. So there is lots of help out there for people. But of course, at the same time, all of this happens. We've also got that national insurance levy. And you were talking about a council tax rebate, but we've also got council tax increases. So for some people, it could be really tricky indeed, particularly when you've got you know, the chairman of Tesco saying we haven't seen anything yet when it comes to food inflation and expecting to hit 5% just at the time this energy price cap hike comes in. And then off the back of that this week, we've had some slightly uncomfortable figures, I would say, for quite a lot of households in terms of energy firms reporting kind of great profits and great dividends. Yeah, I mean, Shell will certainly be wishing that uh, they hadn't moved the date on which they announced the energy price cap change because it came on the same day that it revealed mega profits. I mean, both Shell and BP have had incredible years off the back, of course, of those massive rocketing prices in oil and gas as uh, the cost of a, a barrel of Brent crude a couple of days ago was over $93. It's back down to just over 90 now. But when you think about where it was during the pandemic, it's just incredible. And of course, we know that wholesale gas prices have skyrocketed all at a time when demand has come back as economies try to fight back after covid Shell profits of $17 billion, BP $12 billion. It's also worth noting that energy generator SSE upgraded its profits forecast for the year to almost a billion. That's despite their output from wind power dropping during the summer months because it was an unusually still summer. They used gas-fired power stations to produce, and that more than offset things. Now, in terms of Shell and BP, Laura, they're not alone. We also had mega profits announced in the United States by Chevron and ExxonMobil. But I was having a look at the share price, and while those big US players are significantly up on where they were this time two years ago, BP's share price is still 14% down, and Shell is only up less than 1%. So, you know, there's still quite a lot of ground to make up despite these huge profits. Now, both businesses rewarded shareholders by announcing share buybacks using some of those profits. 
But there are a number of investors sort of on the fence, really, when it comes to these big oil giants, because these bumper profits have come off the back of those bumper prices. And, you know, some people are questioning what happens to those profits if and when those prices come down. And I know that certainly we'd all like to see those prices come down quite quickly. And so this has kind of inevitably prompted comments about um, whether energy firm profits should be subject to some sort of windfall tax that would then, I guess, in turn be funneled towards households that are struggling to pay bills at the moment. Is that looking likely, Danny, or not? Um, The Chancellor has certainly said that he doesn't like the idea. He said that, you know, we believe in the future of the North Sea. We believe in the oil and gas industry. The obvious impact of a windfall tax, he said, will be to deter investment. And at the moment, he wants to see more investment in the North Sea, not less. And that's something that has been echoed by the bosses of those two big energy companies. BP's Bernard Looney said that an additional tax on profits in the UK would divert revenues away from projects to boost gas supply and also produce low carbon energy. He's BP is going to be upping the amount that it spends on that transition to clean and green. And Shell's boss, Ben Van Buren, said, you know, the same thing, really, that the best use of the money is to invest in North Sea oil. But he does say that he is in talks with the government. But it's prompted a lot of uncomfortable conversations because, you know, these companies are profiting, many people say, from the misery of ordinary people. But... You know, if you're going to tax these massive windfalls because these profits have come about because of nothing that they've done, just because prices globally have risen. But if you're going to tax these companies when they get these kind of windfalls, then what about when they suffer huge losses, which, of course, they did in 2020, again, because of falling prices? What are you going to do then? So um, it doesn't look likely at the moment. But as you know, there has been a huge amount of noise being made about this. Labour and the Liberal Democrats are both saying that something needs to be done. And we know that talks are ongoing. So it's kind of a watch this space, but I don't think it will happen. And so elsewhere in markets, we've had some big headlines about Meta, which old people like me will still insist on calling Facebook. Um, But there have been some warnings that it could shut down Facebook and Instagram in Europe. What's that about? Yeah, now this is all about data, um, where it is allowed to be processed. And what uh, Meta, Facebook, Instagram does is it takes the data which comes in from its European users and it processes it and keeps it in Europe. Now, European leaders have been unhappy about this. And we know that a a previous um, way that it was um, done was via something called a privacy shield. But um, that actually stopped back in 2020. And we know that at the moment, there is a lot of discussion about how that data transfer can happen. So Facebook was sort of saying, you know, if, if we can't do it, if we can't process the data, how and where we want to do it, then we might have to shut Facebook and Instagram for European users. 
But that prompted quite an interesting response from a couple of European politicians who said, do you know what, actually, it's it's quite nice not to use Facebook and Instagram. So then you had this sort of backpedaling by uh, Meta saying, look, you know, we, we don't want to do this. We're not planning to do this. But it has made incredible, uncomfortable um, for Meta because all of this row has come at a time when for the first time, Facebook daily users fell. That was part of their um, latest update. And it caused massive falls in Facebook on the stock market, down um, over 30% in the last five days, because there's a lot of questions about its future now. It was looking really for growth in, in Asia because we're kind of a peak subscription, peak use in, in Europe, in the West. Um, so they were really looking to sort of expand in Asia. But some of the rival platforms like TikTok and, and YouTube are sort of eating into that. And there are also questions about its ad revenue going forward because it's, it's talked a lot about Apple's changes to its privacy controls and how you know people can now opt out of apps tracking the, the sort of sites that they visit. And that information is really, really important to people like Facebook wanting to sell ad space because it gives an idea to those advertisers of who to target, where their money is best spent. So there are a lot of questions about the future of Meta. And we know that Mark Zuckerberg is aware of the changes at the moment. That's why he changed the company's name from Facebook to Meta. He's all about investing in the metaverse, but it is prompting a really sort of uncomfortable shift. And that, as I say, has had a huge knock on to the share price. And so now to a different sector, after two years of pretty consistently bad headlines for the travel industry, it's now looking a bit brighter. And there are actually reports that bookings are up even on pre-pandemic levels, um, as a lot of the COVID restrictions have eased and everyone's dream of being somewhere less grey and slightly warmer than here. I'm presuming, Danny, that travel stocks have done fairly well this week off the back of that news. Yes, yes, they have. I was having a look um, yesterday uh, and it was interesting because it was TUI's results that were out and it was TUI that was talking about these bookings. But actually TUI didn't see um, a boost and, and that's possibly because it is still struggling with huge losses. You know, it has narrowed those losses, but it's still not making money at the moment. So, yeah, we did see um, the likes of the British Airways owner, IAG, um, hovering around the the top of the FTSE 100, we saw Carnival and EasyJet also enjoying a healthy bounce. But have you booked a holiday for this year yet, Laura? I have, and I'm very excited. I go in a few weeks' time, and I just wanted to be anywhere that was warmer and sunnier than here. So when did you book that? Because there's a phenomenon which the travel sector is talking about at the moment, that we are leaving things incredibly late to book. So did you book it yeah, recently? Yeah, I booked a couple of weeks ago. So I feel like the past two years, I have been 
optimistic on my ability to travel and then dashed at the last minute by COVID rules changing. So I've learned from that and I wouldn't have booked this months and months in advance. We booked it after um, the UK said it was going to end its um, need to test to return because previously I was worried about if you got COVID while you were on holiday and then you got stuck out there, um, the associated cost and inconvenience and inability to work because of that. Um, but now you don't have to test coming back in. It felt like it was a less risky move, but it still feels much more stressful than traveling pre-pandemic. Well, that is certainly what um, travel operators are seeing, that people are booking incredibly late. They're leaving it incredibly late. But that said, when TUI announced its uh, results yesterday, it said that it, it had seen a bit of a summer holiday boom. Um, people like you are desperate just to see a little bit of sun. And they say that bookings are up a fifth on pre-pandemic levels. And they think that summer um, travel is probably going to be at about the same capacity that it was pre-pandemic so as many people traveling uh, this year as, as they did obviously before COVID caused all of these problems but what's really interesting that came out of TUI's results is that they say that summer break prices will be 22 percent more expensive than two years ago and you know, that comes at a time when we're talking about all households having that price squeeze. But what TUI have said is that people have saved up. They haven't had holidays for a couple of years, some people, or maybe they had cancellations, so they put that money somewhere. So they are wanting to have the best possible holiday that they can get. And also there are some people who are still a bit concerned about some of the restrictions in places like Spain, where um, from over 12, you have to be fully vaccinated if you're going to go without any sort of testing requirements. So what's happening is that places like the Caribbean are, are being chosen over Spain. So people prepared to spend just that little bit more in order to make sure that they can have the break they want without having to, to deal potentially with, with any restrictions. But of course, the question is, how long will those pent up savings last? How much money do people really have in reserve and though you know we all want a holiday we I would love a holiday and I haven't booked yet but we are thinking about the summer so I'll probably wait until sort of June time you've got to sort of cut your cloth and people might look at some of those prices and think I just can't afford that particularly if you think about families that have to travel in school holidays already it's so expensive to travel um, anywhere not even just staying in the UK becomes really expensive as well and then if you're talking about an extra kind of 20% premium on average on top of that that just makes it completely unaffordable for for a lot of families so I think we still will see a lot of people kind of staycationing staying closer to home doing the kind of things that they've been doing over the past couple of years um, because for some that will just be too expensive. I plan on exhausting all of my holidays before my uh, child is school age and I have to pay that extortionate premium. And, and it is an extortionate premium because I've got two school age kids and uh, my eldest is sort of right in the middle of her GCSE um, first year of, of studies, but still, you know, she has to be there. And 
what we've also noticed because we were sort of having a look at prices not ready to book what we're going to do but the prices for those uk holidays because they've been so in demand over the last couple of years place that we went to two years ago now it is out of our budget i mean it's absolutely crazy so i'm sort of waiting to see whether or not the big foreign getaway might bring prices down hopefully and finally i had some very weird and interesting news on the radio this week that i'm hoping you know more about danny so greg's of (laughs) sausage roll fame is launching a tie-up with Primark I just don't understand this tell me more. I know I absolutely love this I spotted this yesterday and I had to, to tweet it out because it just seemed so unlikely and yet so clever so it, it is a gimmick let's be honest it is a gimmick um Greg's and Primark have tied up and part of that tie up will include an 11 piece clothing collection which will be launched in 60 stores there'll also be a pop-up boutique opening in Soho and I'm having a look at certainly one of the offerings which is this white hoodie with a Greg's logo on the front it, it's top of your to buy list Laura I'm sure <laughs> that sounds like I would just look like I'm working in Greg's which there's nothing wrong with that but that's a strange look well what amazed me is that Greg's business development manager said Greg's clothing is something our customers have continually asked for <laughs> Who has been asking for this? Why was there a gap in the market that needed filling? But clearly, uh, according to Greg's business development manager, there was a gap in the market. But I tell you one thing, it has got people talking and people will go into Primark for curiosity and they will stay and browse. And the other thing that they've done is Greg's is launching the world's largest Greg's cafe in Primark's flagship store in Birmingham. See, that makes more sense to me. I can see the logic there. You get hungry (laughs) while you're shopping and you can have a sausage roll. That I buy into. Well, a lot of people on Twitter were messaging me yesterday saying, yes, but the issue is then, does all the clothes smell of pastry and pizzas? (laughs) That's Um, a positive (laughs) to me, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. But... On a serious note, we are seeing a lot of our high street stores trying to find clever ways to bring people in. We saw a tie up between Next and Homebase, which saw, you know, those lovely plants that Homebase does nestled amongst the Next Home stuff. And it just gives you an idea to see a certain type of lifestyle. And it's fascinating that that Greg's and Primark have sort of put themselves together in terms of a lifestyle and and if you look at the clever advertising campaign that goes along with it it's smart and I think you're going to see a lot more retailers doing that just to attract more people through the doors. Now uh, the other big news of last week as you said earlier Laura on the same day that the energy price cap was announced was that the Bank of England increased interest rates from 0.25 to 0.5 percent. Now Clearly, this has had a big impact on any borrowing people have, mainly with their mortgage. So Laura chatted to David Hollingworth, the mortgage broker at LNC, to talk us through what this means for homeowners. So, David, thanks for joining us in what I'm sure is a very busy time at the moment. So firstly, let's talk about the impact of that interest rate hikes for those people that are on a variable rate mortgage. So what kind of cost difference are we looking at for people here? 
Yeah, so anyone on variable rates should really expect that they're going to see some impact, whether that's on a tracker deal or on a lender's standard variable rate, where, of course, the highest rates remain. Um, if you're looking at something, let's say, a typical £150,000 mortgage over 25 years, the most recent hike will be of the order of about £20 a month. Um, but of course, that's following on from a smaller increase after December's rise as well. So you, you could easily be looking in excess of £30 already um, from the base rate hikes that have come so far. And obviously that gets amplified the kind of higher you're borrowing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's a case of looking, there's a few variables there. What's the size of loan being the key one? What rate you're paying and what the mortgage term will be? So you can look online calculators, which will be able to give you a flavour of um, how much you might be paying and how much that might have increased. But of course, what also it'll help you do is understand what could you be paying, you know, and whether you could actually switch to a better deal. Yeah. So is it just a hard and fast rule that anyone on a variable rate deal now could save money by fixing or is it not that clear cut? Uh, as a rule of thumb, yeah, you would be able to. So fixed rates are really still very low. We're still in a very low rate environment. We've got so used to base rate being at historic low of 0.1 that, of course, it feels like we should be panicking. But um, mortgage rates are still extremely low. So you could be fixing in something in the region on a two-year of just over 1.3%. Um, and five-year rates are, are available from just over one and a half percent so you can see just how low those rates are um, and if you compare that to a standard variable rate which could be now um, at around four percent and that's at the lower end some of them are four and a half and higher then you start to get a feel and a flavor for how much you could be saving so you could be knocking hundreds of pounds off per month and those mortgage rates you talk about there, the kind of one and a half percent for over five years. Um, we've obviously now seen two Bank of England um, rate rises. Have we seen an equivalent increase in fixed rate mortgage um, interests or has it not gone up? Yeah, so actually we saw a real flurry of activity going back to the back end of uh, 2021. So as the market started to anticipate that base rate would need to rise, uh, prior to the November meeting, we saw a lot of lender activity as they reacted to changes in funding costs for them. So swap rates were rising. That was feeding through into mortgage rates. And that, that's been a feature that's continued. So going back to October, you would have been able to get two and five year rates below 1%. So that gives you a, an inkling as to how those rates have already pushed up. And actually, we're still seeing lots of repricing activity from lenders. So they're, they're pulling rates uh, and bringing them back, usually with higher rates, um, on, on a very regular basis, uh, sometimes almost weekly. And so um, I guess another group of people that might be a bit concerned are people that are on fixed rate deals at the moment, but where they're coming to an end soon. So those people um, could well have got that original fixed rate deal when mortgage with, mortgages were at total rock bottom rates and base rate was at 0.1%, um, are they going to face a bit of a shock when they come to remortgage and, and what can they do ahead of them? Yeah, it's all about preparation, really. I mean, they can they can sit back pleased with themselves that they're um, costed from these 
current rate rises. But of course, you've got to think ahead and they'll be coming out of those deals into a higher rate environment uh, and a market where rates have perhaps nudged up. Now, as I say, these are still extremely low rates, but what you can do in terms of practical action um, is lock a deal in for as, uh, as much as six months ahead of time. So mortgage lender offers will be valid typically three to six months. Um, but that means that you've got the opportunity to start that process a lot earlier. Bag a rate now, um, even though you're not planning to complete for um, several months. So that, that could give you a little bit of um, an ability to just grab one of the current rates if you're worried about rising rates. And so we're obviously talking about people that are remortgaging and already have a mortgage. Um, what about first-time buyers? So they won't have a mortgage at the moment, but are they going to be um, affected? You've obviously already talked about rates increasing a bit, and, and that will still be the case for first-time buyers as well, won't it? Well, actually, with first-time buyers, what's, what's happened? I mean, you've still got lots of challenges for first-time buyers, namely in getting a deposit together because of the way that house prices have remained so high or, or pushed up even further. So that's that's clearly a key problem for first-time buyers. The rates available for those with smaller deposits have always been higher. But actually, what we've seen is um, rather than them pushing up in the same way that they have for those with large amounts of equity in their home, um, because lenders have got a little bit more margin to play with in those higher loan-to-value deals, i.e. those for small deposits, they've been able to maintain some of the competitiveness of those deals. And in fact, because they've there's been more competition, they've slightly edged down a little bit for those borrowing with only a 5% deposit, say. Um, so it's not all bad news, but nonetheless, I would say first-time buyers will always have to pay higher rates because of those smaller deposits. But that's a glimmer of good news. I like that, some positivity there. Yeah, so um, you know, if we go back to um, the pandemic, of course, those rates disappeared almost entirely. So the market took some time to recover. It was only really last year that we got ninety-five percent rates coming back. So that increased competition has gradually started to improve the rates on offer. So there is there is some silver lining, if you like, for first-time buyers there. And so, more broadly, what do you think that? this means for the housing market. So housing prices have obviously been rising pretty steadily um, and quite rapidly throughout the pandemic. Um, is, are these interest rate rises going to dampen some of that housing market? I know it's a little bit of asking you to have a crystal ball here. Yeah, but I, th- I think you've, you're already going to see some kind of reduction in that activity. So we had the end of the stamp duty holiday kicking in last year, and that certainly contributed to the already high demand as people looked to to move the focus on where you lived was such a big part of lockdown, for example, that uh, it really stoked massive demand. Now, I think that demand remains. Um, I, I don't think that, that will go away overnight. Um, so the kind of race for space um, is still there. But of course, there's a real lack of property on the market. So that's helping to support prices in the face of um, rising rates and and the cost of living crisis, which is starting to put the squeeze on monthly budgets. So we'll see how that affects uh, consumer confidence in in the market. But I think the lack of property available means that there is more than adequate demand to keep 
uh, prices at a kind of current level, albeit at slower rates of increase. Thanks so much for talking us through all of that today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. While our Round the World Investing series has ended, that doesn't mean that we don't have a great fund manager guest for you this week. So this week, we're looking at Artemis Positive Future, which is a fund that invests in companies it thinks will help make the world a better place. Um, so this relatively new fund was just starting to make a name for itself, and then it got caught by the January sell-off in markets. So Dan Coatesworth has met up with manager Neil Godin to see how he's coping with those volatile market conditions and how they decide what kind of companies to invest. Neil, can you start off by explaining what Artemis Positive Future Fund is trying to achieve and how it might be different to other funds with an ESG slant? We sit in a position that I think is very different to anyone out there I can see, certainly in the UK and Europe. We focus on stocks that are are trying to solve the problems with really strong innovation We're invested in companies that we call transformational in nature. So what does that mean? I mean, really simply, the simplest answer is it's electric vehicles versus a combustion engine. You know, it's those it's those moments in time where you're changing the changing the focus, you're changing the value proposition. So you've got these combustion engine um, makers who have done an amazing job, by the way, over you know, over 100 years on making the combustion engine in a quite effective way that's cost effective to them, that's good for the consumer. Unfortunately, it just turns out that, you know, it's killing one in five people every day because of the gases that are coming out of the back of them, along with other other noxious gases. And that's quite apart from climate change. So it turns out we need something new. The reason a company like Tesla has been so successful is you know, all of that practice the combustion engine companies have had is largely useless. In fact, you could argue it's actually prohibitive to them making the change from a combustion engine to an electric engine. They are just so different. It doesn't help all that. All the, all the good stuff they've done for the combustion engine just is getting in the way of building an electric engine. An electric engine has 17 parts. You know, um, a combustion engine has thousands of parts you know it's just a very different beast the way you build them and that's why tesla's come along and been able to carve a niche for itself let's face it if tesla was building the best combustion engine in the world it certainly would not have a valuation close to a trillion dollars you know so we're looking for those moments where things are really changing it is amazing that we are focusing on stuff like putting less you know, packaging on our cucumbers. It's great, but it's not going to impact the climate change sort of narrative enough. You know, we need to do more than that. We need to do more than that that to solve some of the environmental and social issues out there. So we're focusing on those companies that are really trying to encourage change. You know, we own a company called Insulit that have just recently had their latest version of their Omnipod technology authorised. This is for diabetics. It now talks live to your mobile phone and makes sure that your um, insulin levels stay within one standard deviation either side of norm, the normal at all times. You know, you just wear this patch and forget, forget about it. You know, the, the numbers around how much money is spent on treating um, diabetics is into the tens of billions each year for um, events that happen, you know, both serious 
and the, the serious events that happen are up to two and a half a, um, a year for for the average diabetic if we can cut those down we can both make the life the long-term life expectancy and life of a diabetic much better and also reduce healthcare costs that's a great example of the the way we think about the world we want to focus on those companies that that are doing both you know bringing down costs and making the world a better place both in the environmental and social areas yeah so i mean if you're investing in companies which could deliver sort of a transformational change does that suggest that some of them um they're they're sort of the big profits are actually going to be achieved in the future rather than today and, and if so I, you know on those sort of the type of stocks actually they've been hit the hardest in the market correction this year yes and yes <laughs> i mean yeah it, you know it's it's been a tough tough month for us tough six weeks for us yeah i mean it's 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 hard um we've had many years of the interest rate narrative helping us as growth investors um in the short term the interest rate narrative is risk to the upside um i have very little view over the long term as to who is right and who is wrong on the interest rates what i do know is um, our companies have very strong margins they have very strong business models where they where they are suffering inflation in the supply chain which is less than most companies because they're quite asset light in general they'll be able to pass on the vast majority if not all of that cost and perhaps most importantly our companies on average carry cash on the balance sheet and not debt so in terms of how many of my companies that we own today are going to be really damaged by interest rates going to one and a half two percent even two and a half i mean it's zero now i understand why the growth stocks are getting sold off you you covered it very nicely it's the fact that the risk is out there in the longer term and interest rate rises make that risk uncertain i get why the market's doing what it's doing it doesn't mean on a five or ten year view it matters though and for us we're actually you know rubbing our hands together with excitement to be honest because there's been some real value creation in some of these environmental and social stocks over the last six weeks you know so we are busy working hard and working about which ones will come out of this um, um stronger than they were before or nothing's changed except valuation and thus we want to invest yes I, I have you actually sort of taken a new position um following the sort of the sell-off because you've been able to buy a good company at a cheaper price yeah the late the the latest company we bought is a canadian company called lifespeak that um, help in areas of mental health, largely in companies. Um, you know, it's been a tough time for a lot of people, work from home, stress of COVID, et cetera. And, you know, they work with HR departments and people like that to produce videos, and, you know, sort of interviews to help with people's um you know, help improve people's mindsets and, and mental health over these difficult times. And we don't believe that that's an area that is going to be impacted by interest rates going up or down. And the, the stock price has come down a lot. And we thought it was an attractive entry point. But I mean, that was a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we continue to look for other ideas. You know, we're working on other ideas as we speak. So, I mean, there's, there's some names in your portfolio which 
perhaps they're not household names, but they're really interesting businesses. I wondered if you could sort of talk through why you, you like MIPS, M-I-P-S. Yeah, I mean, MIPS is one of my favourite names and actually it's probably one of the ones I find easiest to explain. And so it's an amazing company. So, you know, like any of these problems that new companies or, you know, scientists, whatever it may be, come along and solve, it's actually really obvious. So um, we've always had bike helmets, motorbike helmets, skiing helmets. They've been made in the same way for a number of years. Um, but actually, they test them by dropping a weight on top of them, you know, straight from the very top onto your head. And if it doesn't crack, it's a good helmet. Now, if you've ever been on a bike, which you probably have, uh, if you've ever been skiing, it's very rare that you land straight down on your head. I mean, it's very perfect. Where you normally land at an angle, you're normally spinning, you might come off to the left, you might fall backwards. None of it is what the, the test actually tests for. So MIPS have worked for a number of years on the head, the, the rotation of the head and reducing that impact. So what happens when you hit the floor is actually a lot of the injury happens by the brain rotating. And the MIPS is the really simple product that reduces the speed of that rotation. So it works a bit like a seatbelt in your car. If you think about when you hit, or hit a car, another car or wall, that first little bit where it just kind of slows you before it locks entirely is exactly what their product does. So it's a really simple piece of plastic that sits between the head and the helmet, and it just crunches in whichever direction your brain is traveling as you have the accident and it reduces the speed of the brain instead of it reducing it all at once it reduces it gradually just like a seatbelt does so it doesn't do you too much damage i mean this is hugely helpful in terms of damage i mean god forbid a cyclist ever comes off their bike or a motorcyclist you know at the end of the day the worst case scenario is unfortunately death but there's other long-term effects like you know ending up in in a wheelchair whatever it may be ending up with serious brain damage um all of these things can be really costly to your life really costly to your family's life really costly to the healthcare sector so again this is a five pound piece of technology that can greatly reduce the impact of a crash on on the environment around you and the world and you as a person. So amazing piece of technology, really simple. They work with all the big um, bike manufacturers. It's going across ski as well. There's very little in the way of competition and you're just seeing what we always look for, which is exponential growth. So, you know, 2020, it was 2 million helmets. 2021, it's 20 million helmets. 2022, it'll be 50 million helmets. You know, that's that's what we're looking for. We're, we're looking for that explosive growth in products that are helping have a positive impact on the world. And MIPS is very much a poster child for that. They're actually starting to now work in safety as well. So there's lots of accidents that happen on um, building sites and areas and in industrial, you know, factories, industrial complexes that, again, Something, yeah, yeah, okay, a brick can fall on your head, but actually, you know, it's often that you fall over and bang your head and you're rotating. So um, another big area for them, another exciting growth prospect, and we expect that growth to continue for a while, yeah. Yeah, and just just finally, you've got a couple of companies in the portfolio that are in the hearing space. You've got Cochlear and Amplifon. What, what sort of attracted you to these stocks then? 
Yeah, so, I mean, they're very different. Cochlear is implants. So, you know, it's a long-term solution for those people who, you know, are, are unfortunately hard of hearing or deaf. Um, there's some evidence around the impact of hard um, being hard of hearing. Again, you can think about it as the person, a child that can't hear, hear, it's very difficult for them to interact with the world around them, you know. But actually, when you look at the cost that can have in terms of the social impact, it's also, you know, really big. If you can't interact with the world, you're, you're unlikely to get a job, you're, you're unlikely to do all the normal things that lucky humans can do. So the cochlear implant can help people who can't hear permanently hear again. And it's amazing and it's so powerful. Um, the Amplifon story is a bit different. It's it, it's very simple. I mean, we've all seen the, the shops on the on the high street. Um, what we really like and what we think is transformational about the way Amplifon is doing things at the moment is Amplifon um, has introduced its own private label hearing aids. So the average hearing aids, even the basic ones, were very expensive, sort of around £2,000 and upwards. Um, and the, the introduction level Amplifon private label one comes at £500. And it's as good, if not better, than the, the more old-fashioned traditional um, hearing aids you see out there. So this is a product that is really exciting in terms of getting hearing aids to the more, more people that need them. You know, in this country, there's something like 40% of people that could do with having some sort of help hearing, and only, you know, a, a quarter of those people have got a hearing aid. But when you get into countries, you know, out in Africa or Asia, you know, that figure's still 40%, but it's 2 or 3% that are getting the right type of help um, and you can imagine, you can talk about the short-term cost of a hearing aid being expensive, but when you think about the total cost of care, and this is something we think about a lot in all of the healthcare products and, and environmental products we invest in, is the total impact on the world if you think about how much you're paying in other costs is, is far offset and far more benefit to just get that hearing aid. Now, for Amplifon, they used to they used to be able to make a very small margin selling other people's hearing aids. Now they make it. Now, although the new hearing aid is a quarter of the price of the ones they were selling, they're making a higher margin, and that's what's exciting for us as investors is they're going for that process of um, building a higher margin for their business with their own product, and it's working amazingly well. I mean, as a country swaps from using hearing aids that are third party to Amplifon, it very quickly builds to 95% of their sales being Amplifon hearing aids. Well, Neil Godden from the Artemis Positive Future Fund, thank you very much for joining us today. That's everything for this week. We promise Jenny Owen will be back with us next week. But before we go, we just wanted to give a plug to the other podcast that Laura and I do, which is called Money Matters. It's focused on getting more women engaged with money and investing. We've got episodes on how to financially manage a career break or beat first time investing fears to getting personal on, on how sports people like Olympic triathlete Georgia Taylor Brown manages her money 
or maths guru Bobby Siegel wants more women getting into money. You can find it on your usual podcast app by searching for Money Matters or go to youinvest.co.uk forward slash money matters. And next week on this podcast, we have a great interview looking at the rise of Dear CEO Letters, which is where the financial regulator puts pressure on banks and insurance companies who are in the public domain. So join us then for that and lots more. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.